Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 103. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. Today, joined again by another very special guest, Dr. David Lay. David, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. So, David, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You were introduced to us through our mutual friend, Stefan Kesting, and We were looking for someone to help us cover the topic today on the show, which is depression and jujitsu. And Stefan said, you're the guy with the right credentials to do this. But why don't you maybe just give our audience a quick introduction, please? Yeah, so I uh, I come to you guys with some some complicated kind of credentials. I'm a uh, clinical psychologist. Uh, I run a very large mental health agency in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You know, I have a PhD. I've been uh, practicing as a psychologist for uh, 20 years, and um, uh, I'm also a black belt in jujitsu. Um, I've held my black belt, uh, gosh, probably five years now. I've been training jujitsu um, 15 years, maybe, and uh, was a wrestler back in the day for a long time and so jujitsu was was right for me and I write on psychology today I actually write a lot I'm also a, a board certified sex therapist and I have this very strange kind of uh, public presence and image around issues of sexuality and, and, and dealing with pornography issues and stuff like that and uh, started writing I've got three books about um, you know sexuality and mental illness and stuff like that and uh, wrote a, a couple of pieces on psychology today a while back that went kind of viral and in the jiu-jitsu community where I was talking about uh, the psychology of jiu-jitsu and, you know, the, the neurochemistry of it, but also just kind of why, why jiu-jitsu is, is so, you know, powerful for us and why, why it becomes so important in our lives. Cool. I just, uh, sorry, quick question, David. Uh, just curious, where do you train in New Mexico? Who's your instructor? I've been with Gracie Baja my entire uh, kind of career. Got my black belt under Roberto Alencar, um, so very short lineage. He got his under Carlos Gracie Jr. and wow. you know wow. straight back real quick. I've been I've been training under Roberto for for a long time. Awesome. Roberto um, yeah, Tusa, um, yeah, he's he's world champ multiple times, and he's also the the main coach for uh, John Jones in Albuquerque. You know we're really lucky because we've got. You know, first, just a, a stellar, you know, jujitsu kind of community. I mean, we, mm-hmm. on a regular day, we've got, you know, pre COVID, right? Um, but on a regular day, we've got, you know, four, five, six, ten, you know, black belts on the mat. And, uh, it's a very deep bench. But then we also have the, the really unique opportunity that we, we partner with Jackson Wink. And, um, you know, I mean, I train on a, on a very regular basis with folks like John Jones, Holly Holm, Carlos Condit, you know, Diego Brandau. You, you know, Keith Jardine used to train a bit with us. He's, he's, retired quite a bit but you know it's pretty extraordinary the talent that we get to roll with yeah that's awesome (laughs) well that's amazing yeah geez (laughs) i mean you know i I thought we had some cool guys up here but man that is like a murderer's row of talent must be a hard day on the mat sometimes (laughs) well that's what makes it a good day i mean i you know i love walking away thinking whoa you know and and and, and, you know i just got my ass kicked and, and now i've got a lot of new stuff to learn um, what's really fun is, uh, uh, you know, when, again, when the world is, is normal, we, uh, we have this, uh, monthly, uh, Friday night nogi roll with, with, with Jackson's and, um, Jackson has this interesting kind of, uh, a model where they, they have dormitory rooms and they have people come in from all over the world to train there. And because we're a mile high altitude, you know, people get the altitude training as well. 
So we'll have this nogi role where uh, evening where, uh, uh, you know, you're rolling with all these guys from, uh, I mean, all over the world, guys and gals. I mean, I, I, you know, literally in one night, I mean, I remember I rolled with, you know, somebody from Russia, somebody from uh, uh, South America, somebody from Australia, a guy from Mongolia. Um, and uh, you get you get just a really unique kind of uh, experience, you know, rolling with with people with so many different styles from all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, I mean, I don't want to make our listeners too jealous. <laughs> so maybe uh, you can actually help us answer a listener question that we get a lot and one that Matt and I have agreed we're totally unequipped to answer. And that is to have a conversation about depression and jujitsu. Now we get a lot of questions asking about this often not necessarily a particularly pointed steered question, but just, you know, general thoughts on this. Now, I don't have any sort of medical background, so I'm the last person you'd want to take advice on this from. And, you know, the other thing about depression, too, is that I, I think maybe first and foremost, we should define what that means. I mean, I, depression is one of those terms that I think is probably a little bit overused, much to its detriment. It's like how, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, I, I got a little bit of OCD. Well, no, you probably don't, right? Like that's an actual medical condition. So maybe you can help us kind of put a box around this. What is depression? What what does it mean? And what are the different gradients of it that people can experience? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, depression is clinically defined as, um, you know, when you are feeling sad, down, irritable for most of the day, almost every day for about two weeks. Now, it seems like that's a short period, but when we, the reason for that is we really look and say, you know, if, if this is a feeling that is bothering you every day, almost all day, and it keeps going on for that long, then we really need to respond pretty quickly. Historically, you know, there were kind of a framing where it was like, oh, you know, this really needs to go on for a month. This really needs to go on for three months before, you know, we're going to view it as, as something clinically worthy. But a lot of research really pointed us to the fact that early intervention is best and early intervention is most effective. So if you find yourself where, you know, you're, 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 you're struggling in your feeling and it, it doesn't let up, you can't look back over the past couple of weeks and see a day where you felt okay and you got things done. That's the other part is that these feelings not only need to be existing and dysphoric. Dysphoric is some, you know, stupid PhD clinical word, basically just feeling bad, right? When you're feeling sad or down. Um, but if you can't look back and see a time when you weren't feeling dysphoric and those negative feelings, that negative mood state is getting in the way. It's making it hard for you to get things done, to enjoy your life. It's causing problems for your motivation to get out of bed, to go to work, when you're at work, you're having difficulty concentrating. Then we, and, and all mental disorders are diagnosed by basically a, a two-part kind of model where A, there are symptoms that you're struggling with and B, they are causing some distress or dysfunction. So in other words, they're getting in the way, they're causing a problem. When those are present is where we, we, we identify it as a disorder. Now, you know, your comments actually in the questions you're getting really reflect kind of the complicated piece of depression because depression is different in every person. And, you know, for some people it is, uh, it involves, you know, just, you know, just feelings of, of sadness and grief and, and just down for other folks, particularly guys and young people. Depression often comes out as irritability. And, you know, just kind of feeling um, irritable, reactive, not having a lot of resilience or tolerance for the things that normally don't bother you. And, and, and sometimes coming out as anger, um, just kind of angry all the time. And when we drill down, we find out this is depression. And, uh, you know, you're angry, but you're angry because you're sad and you're not feeling good. Well, let me ask a, a question because... This is something I'd love to know. To what extent is depression a biological matter? And to what extent is depression the result of your circumstances? And is it even possible to answer a question like that? Because I mean, I speaking for myself and 
I would venture to guess speaking for probably almost everyone listening to this. I mean, I feel very depressed right now. Um, and that's, that's not something that I normally deal with. Right. But the last nine months, you know, nine months into a global pandemic for the first time in, in my, in my life, I'm dealing with like what I would say is a long window of depression. And I guess my question is, is that actually depression or is it disrespectful to call it depression? Does that do a disservice to people who suffer like quote unquote real depression? I'm just wondering if what we're all kind of collectively experiencing is actually what you would call depression. Yeah. Um, You know, the answer to your question is yes, depression is biological and it is psychological and life circumstances. It's really both. You know, we we live in our brains and any um, of our mental experiences are by nature biological. And and to be honest, I um, I really reject this modern kind of thing of uh, painting or perceiving mental disorders as inherently biological and that that somehow gives them some greater validity or reality because then we can say, oh, well, you know, it's not your fault. You have a chemical imbalance in your brain. Well, not really because everything in our – every one of our experiences is in our brain. Everything is biological. We are biological beings. And so it it is this unfortunate kind of philosophical kind of trick to, to sort of separate us and our experiences from our body. Um, instead, I argue that we really do best by by looking at all of our experiences, um, positive and negative, from a blended biological and psychological and and sociological, you know, environmental kind of perspective. Because all of our lives are an integration of all of those three. Now. Something I was probably going to say later, and we'll probably come back to it. But interestingly, the way that we most effectively treat uh, depression right now is, uh, and this will sound stupid, but it is by getting people to act as though they're not depressed. Um, you know, when you are depressed, oftentimes people don't want to leave the house. They don't want to go out and do the things that they would normally do when they're not depressed. There's a, a concept called anhedonia. Anhedonia is when you don't enjoy the things you normally enjoy. Um, it's a lack of pleasure. And so because anhedonia is a symptom of depression, oftentimes people stop doing the things that they enjoy. And as a result, it creates this kind of spiral, this downward spiral that feeds on itself. When we're not doing the things we enjoy, we feel worse. And because we're feeling worse, we do even less of the things we enjoy, which makes us feel worse and worse even on top of that. And it just builds on top of itself. So the way we treat depression from a cognitive behavioral standpoint is we tell people, look, even though you don't feel like going out and doing social stuff and doing the things that you normally enjoy, you need to do them because even even as you're doing it, it might not feel good, but you need to keep doing it enough that your brain kind of goes, oh. I remember what that's like. Yeah, I remember what that's like and I must be feeling better than I thought it was. So here's a mm-hmm. here's this interesting study that they did where they they told people look smile. Even though you're not feeling happy or 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 glad about anything, smile as though you are. And what they found was that when you smile even though you're not happy about something, it changes the way you're feeling and it makes mm-hmm. you feel a little happier. And it's kind of like your brain gets confused and goes, well, I'm not really feeling happy, but I'm smiling. I'm, I smile when I'm happy, so I must be happier than I think I am. So mm-hmm. by engaging in this kind of cognitive behavioral therapy approach with people and, and getting them to do the things that they would do when they're not depressed, we actually turn the brain around and we start going reverse up that spiral. The thing is that in this pandemic, we're doing it backwards. We're now acting the way we would if we were depressed. And so we really are kind of convincing our brains, fuck, I, I really must be depressed because I'm acting like I'm depressed. So I guess I am. Yeah, I, I know what Steve's talking about. That feeling that we've kind of all had, just the the uncertainty and and some of us not being able to do 
either the social things that we normally do that you're talking about that you might even use as therapy for uh, someone with depression by the sounds of it. Just that feeling of like, like you talked about that downward spiral where you just get unmotivated because you can't do the things that you want to do. And, and like I've noticed recently, you know, if I'm not podcasting or I'm not working out at the gym, then it's just because uh, I have my own school, right? If I'm not working out at the gym, you know, then I'm just, I feel like a lazy piece of shit. <laughs> I feel like I don't even want to uh, get off the couch sometimes. It's like, you're, I, I feel way less motivated to train hard. And it's, you kind of have to play these mental tricks on yourself. Like, like you said, you know, smile and your, your brain kind of follows your face. It reminds me of a classic jujitsu example that I've used before when I explained to white belts about how to, how to sort of not panic in these situations is like, take a guy like Marcelo Garcia and what he used to do when he would compete and he would talk about how he, when he kept his face calm, he naturally just was more calm. He was able to make better decisions and just have uh, a clearer mind when he's grappling. So that, that kind of reminds me of that example. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a really good one. You've inspired me. I mean, I, I think in the future when, when I'm asking people, you know, um, are you feeling depressed? I'll, I'll say, Hey, remember how you felt during the pandemic? Are you feeling like that again? If you are, yeah, yep, yeah. it's depression. <laughs> yeah. It, it is actually interesting because this is probably like the first time in, I mean, our lifetimes where we can all collectively say, you know, Hey, do you remember the way you felt at that one point in time? Remember you, because this is a, it is an interesting collective experience that we all have and that we're all going to be able to look back on. I mean, it's been a very weird year for sure. And I, I totally feel what you're saying. I mean, this interestingly keys with advice that my own instructor gave me, which is that, you know, sometimes you just don't want to go to the, I mean, this is all again, pre COVID era stuff, but sometimes you just don't want to go to the gym. And when you feel that way, the best thing to do is to get up and go to the gym. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then usually those wind up being the days that you wind up being most thankful for actually showing up because you know, that's, it's, it's so important to not kind of give into that lethargy. And yeah, I agree like this year, you know, it's kind of been forced lethargy. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much an introvert anyway. I don't like to go out and party, but you're always lethargic. Yeah, it's true. It's my whole, it's my whole strategy in jujitsu. But the one is, thing I do is, enjoy. Is, is that why you play turtle so much? Is it you? <laughs> Actually, yes. Yeah. No, so it's funny you bring that up. So yeah, I mean, the reason I'm, I'm always into turtle is because, well, it started because I was getting my ass kicked with these really good back takers jumping on me and choking me. And, and I thought, well, you know what? Let's just walk into the dragon's den. So I started going to turtle, forcing them to basically attack me from there. And after about a month of that, my back defense got so good that I realized, well, you know what? I can actually use this as kind of like a gotcha to wind up getting on top where people can try and still try and jump my back. And I know my back defense is better than their back offense. So I'll wind up on top. And I found that against like these absolute monsters that I train with where they're so big and strong, I'm just not going to be able to hit a regular sweep on them. Sometimes the best strategy is to, you know, play a bit of sleight of hand and get them to try to take the back. Like it's the only way, for example, with Matt, Matt's got really good base, right? It's the only way I'm going to get on top of him is if I can make him screw up a back take. So anyway, that that's where the turtle thing comes from. But over time, as I've gotten older, I've realized actually I'm just fucking lazy. Too. <laughs> that's a big well, part yeah, of it see, as well. That, I mean, that's the funny thing when, you know, I was, I was looking at your podcast and seeing all the turtle stuff and I was like, yeah, okay. Cause, cause I play turtle a lot too, you know, from back in the day with wrestling, my, you know, my, my, my base is really strong. My, my, my turtle is really tight. And my problem is it is a place where I can be lazy and kind of mm -hmm. hide and wait for somebody to make a mistake. And then I get sweep, I get the roll, whatever, and get side control or top. But my my professors get really frustrated with me for it because they're like, ah, you got you, you know you, you got to go on offense. I'm like, yeah, I'll I'll sit here until they make a mistake <laughs> and then I'll go on offense. Yeah, the, the big trick with turtle is you have to learn to play it aggressively, which sounds totally contradictory, but it's doable, right? If you just sit there and let the other guy jump on you and do what he wants, you've already kind of like given up the tempo. So you've got to kind of be like a little. I don't, you have to be like a snapping turtle, right? Where you're basically chasing someone down and you're trying to latch onto them. And it's, I mean, it's not an advisable A game strategy, but that said, sometimes against a, a superior opponent, you get forced into this position and man, you want to be able to get out of it. But anyway, you know, back onto the topic of, of jujitsu at a large and, and depression. 
I, I can say that, you know, out of all of the things that I've had to give up during the pandemic, you know, being a kind of an introverted guy, most of them don't really bother me that much. I don't care that I don't have to go into the office. I don't care that I don't go to restaurants. I do care that I can't go to jujitsu because in my life, I mean, I, I'm not an athletic guy. I hate working out. I hate all, all of these things. I find exercise boring as hell. The only type of exercise I've ever found that I've really truly enjoyed is jujitsu and that's gone now. Right. And I, I agree that that has definitely had a noticeable impact on, I mean, not even just my mood, but just I'm, I'm much more lethargic. Some days I just get up and I just want to sleep. Like I don't even want to get out of bed. You know, some days I get up and I'm just like kind of struggling to figure out what the point is. And it's, it's weird how, you know, just having such a disruption in your routine, such a little thing like jujitsu can actually wind up really impacting your, your overall mental health. Now, I'm, I'm hoping, of course, that this pandemic gets resolved sooner rather than later. I mean, it's actually been just almost an unbelievable amount of scientific progress in the last few months. So who who knows? But that said, it's definitely been an informative experience to a lot of us, I think. And I, I would actually then raise the question, something that I know a lot of grapplers will say is they'll throw out these funny platitudes. They'll say things like jujitsu saved my life or jujitsu is therapy. And I mean, to, on one hand, that's kind of bullshit, right? But on the other hand, I would then turn the question to you. Is there any truth to that? I mean, do we need to look at jujitsu as having some sort of therapeutic property or is a lot of that just overblown hype that we, we use because we want to kind of puff up the sport? You know, I think for, for some people, um, it really is therapeutic and, and beneficial. I think, I think it, it really can be very, very effective. Um, the challenge and the problem is that it is for some people, but not everybody. And the, the, the trap that we fall into oftentimes is saying, hey, this worked for me, so it will work for you. Well, it might or might not, depending upon, uh, you know, the other person and their kinds of issues. You know, I, I think about like, um, you know, Ed O'Neill. Um, from Married with Children and, you know, a famous, famous black belt jiu-jitsu guy who, you know, got into jiu-jitsu because he was, you know, uh, he, he had aggression that he didn't have an outlet for and he wasn't dealing with it in a very healthy way. And jiu-jitsu gave him this very, very positive pro-social outlet for aggression in a healthy way. And he has identified that that was, you know, one of the things that really kind of saved his, saved his life and, and saved his marriage and his career in a lot of ways, because otherwise he would have gotten himself into trouble. You know, I can identify people that where jujitsu is a place that they can go and they can connect with other people that are like them, that value aggression and competition. One of the things that I, I do as a therapist is you know, working with people that are depressed and lonely is try to identify what are the things that, that they value, what are the things that they get positive things out of, and then try and help them find places where there are other people like them that they can go and do those activities with and develop connection and bond. That's what jujitsu is for a lot of people. If that is what you're into. Yeah. I think because at the beginning of the episode, uh, David, you said that depression can be many different things, right. And uh, for, for different people. So I guess it only makes sense that there's going to be for each person and each separate case of depression, there's going to be a unique or uh, appropriate um, response or remedy. It's not all across the board. So to say that jujitsu is therapy could be true for many people and not true also for many people. It just, I guess it's like, it depends kind of what their interests are. And I guess therapy is kind of unique to the individual in a way. Absolutely. It really, it has to be targeted. Now there are some, there are some, some, some bigger picture patterns that we talk about, the cognitive behavioral therapy kind of strategies that, that I identified a little bit ago, but we have to target those strategies to the individual person because that's what makes it work. That's what makes it unique. And then the, you know, I, I think one of the questions you guys had gotten was, was around, you know, how, uh, antidepressant medications kind of play into this. And the, it, it's a really complicated kind of esoteric sort of debate right now within my field about, you know, well, do, do, do antidepressant medications work? 
work. And some research says, says they do. Some says they don't. Some says they work for some people and not others. The uh, antidepressant medications, things like Prozac and Zoloft and Effexor and stuff like that. These are medications that are, uh, they're called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And uh, there are some other kinds too, but these are the ones that seem to work best. And basically what they do is they, they help your brain chemistry start looking not depressed, basically. And the, the thing is, though, that while me- that the, these medications, they, they take about six weeks to really kick in. And so it's not like aspirin. Um, you take it in an hour or two, you feel better. You got to take these medications every day as prescribed for six weeks before it's really going to have an effect. Um, they oftentimes increase the energy, um, you know, dealing with that lethargy from depression. Um, uh, they oftentimes uh, you treat that first. One, that's one of the first symptoms that kind of goes away. The, the problem is that if you don't make changes in your life while you're on the antidepressant medications and then you stop taking the, dep- the medications, then a lot of times those problems come back and the depression comes back. So it's one reason why people like me recommend you really kind of got to do both. You got you to do the medication and you got to do therapy to really look at how to change the things in your life that are causing the depression. Because, you know, there's a famous quote, you know, maybe, maybe you're depressed or maybe you're just surrounded by assholes. And if you're surrounded by assholes, you're going to stay depressed until you change that. Yeah, that's a really fantastic point. I mean, I think anyone who has ever worked a job where your coworkers suck, like yeah. you can totally relate to this. I mean, I remember I worked at a job and we just had one guy who was just ultra unpleasant to work with, just one guy. And I hated working there. And then one day he resigned. And like the day he was gone, it was like a friggin' cloud had been lifted over my life. And I was like, holy shit, this one idiot had that much of an impact on my mental health. <laughs> it's it, it's a good point that, you know, I, I think that often we we forget how important our environment is. And I mean, in the jujitsu context, I mean, I've talked about this on the podcast repeatedly. You know, if you train at a gym where it's really culty and there's a lot of drama and you don't, you know, or maybe you're, you're having fights with people in the gym, like the toll that can take on your mental health Versus just going to a gym where everyone gets along and acts like grownups. Like it is incredible how detrimental jujitsu can be if you train at the wrong place. Right. And so it, mm-hmm. I think environmental context is so important when you want to consider, um, you know, how you can be a happier, more mentally healthful person. And, you know, to your point earlier, for a lot of us, jujitsu is an outlet. It's our third place, right? That we go to, to, to socialize, to blow off steam. And with that now taken away from us, we've kind of lost that environmental context. And I think we're, we're kind of seeing the impact that that's had on a lot of people who, you know, for many of us, jujitsu is a, is a career. It's one of the, the highest priorities in our life. And now that, that door is at least temporarily closed. And you can, you can definitely see the result that that is having. For me, you know, jujitsu has really always been a because I'm a, you know, I, I'm a I'm a I'm a thinking guy. I spend a lot of time in my head, you know, and and uh, yeah, I run a very large business, and so I, you know, I'm always stressed and worried about something. And jujitsu is really one of the places, one of the only places in my life where I can go. And get my head out of my ass because, you know, when a, when a, you know, two or 300 pound guy, you know, is trying to choke you and break your arm and, you know, rip your foot off, you can't think about work or budget or bills. You know, you're in a life or death situation. Your brain chemistry, haha, kind of changes and puts you in that survival mode where your entire intense focus is on this moment, you know, and, and jujitsu is, is one of the places in my life where I I can be really, really mindful where I can be really focused on what's happening right here, right now. And when I don't have that in my life, I find myself getting really stressed. I find myself worried, brooding, being really preoccupied with, with what's going on in the world and feeling like, you know, the politics and, and the social stuff is, you know, it's just, I'm drowning in it, um, without the ability to, 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 to get it out of my head the way jujitsu does for me. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because, I mean, something that I've always said on this podcast is that jujitsu is 
forced mindfulness. That's probably the biggest benefit it has, right? I mean, I'm a big advocate of things like meditation, but the main difference between jujitsu is you have to be in the present moment, right? You don't have a lot of choice when some dude is sitting on your chest trying to choke you out and learning not just to be in the present moment, but also to be calm in the present moment under intense pressure. It's one of the kind of shadow benefits of jujitsu that I I think is actually more helpful than the grappling, even than the fitness, is learning to be mindful under extreme pressure. That's actually, I think, probably the main thing that most people get out of jujitsu, even if they don't put that label on it. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the things that I, that I identify as kind of one of the biggest benefits that I've learned is that, um, I can be in a bad situation where I am vulnerable. And yet in that bad situation, I can protect myself and stay safe until I can find a way out. Yeah, it's interesting. I watched this movie, uh, what's it called? Gemini, I think the other day with Will Smith, where it's, it's like old Will Smith assassin versus young clone Will Smith, um, coming after him. And it made me think, you know, what would it be like to, you know, I'm 47. What would it be like to fight myself when I was 18 or 19, 20 years old? And, and really, I think that I would kick my ass, my younger ass, because when I was young, I didn't know what it was like to be in a bad situation and not give up. And now, yeah, I, there's this one guy I train with. I'm, I'm about 180, maybe pounds. And there's a guy I train with that, you know, he's like 260, 270, and the guy's just solid as a rock, you know, and and when he smashes you, you know, you know you've been smashed. And I used to just kind of panic, and I realized that that wasn't working for me. So I started very intentionally pulling guard and putting myself under him and letting him smash me until I could find a way to get out. And... That actually taught me something really, really powerful. It taught me to trust in myself and that in those moments where I was feeling scared and overwhelmed to, to trust in myself and in the technique that there's going to be a way out and you're going to be okay. That actually has, has, I think, been one of the, one of the healthiest lessons I've learned from jujitsu. And that, and that really permeates through life because when you're in that scary situation, knowing that you can trust in, in yourself gives you that ability to be calm and then make the right decision most effectively when it's the right time. Yeah, it's something we've talked about on the podcast, the concept of growth from discomfort and how really all of the important growth you're going to experience as a person comes from pushing yourself outside of your boundaries. And that that is something that I think all of us can relate to in jujitsu. It's not even just that we learn tactics for self-defense, but it is that we learn that we are capable. And that gives us the confidence that, yes, we can do it, which kind of creates a virtuous cycle, right? I mean, I, yeah. I remember a, a similar parallel. I remember when I was in, in college, you know, I don't think I've ever worked that hard in my life. You know, I was punching like 100, 120 hour weeks some weeks. And I honestly don't remember much of what we actually studied that now. But one thing I do remember is that the fact that I was able to work that hard and do it gave me confidence that, man, if I can do this, I can do anything in the workforce. Right. And that that more than anything was the big lesson that I got out of out of post-secondary education, which is that it taught me that I can be a grown-up. Like I can go out into the real world and do real grown-up work. And I think jujitsu in a lot of ways gives you the confidence to carry yourself because you know, if you know that you can defend yourself, then it just it gives you confidence to be a bolder version of the person that you are. And I think that's part of the reason why people speak so lovingly about jujitsu as a, a builder of character. I would ask you a question, and this is something that one of our listeners did ask, which is, how do you achieve your jujitsu goals when you're combating depression? And we specifically had a listener talk about how they, they're afflicted with depression and it impacts their ability to perform, particularly on the competition scene. You know, they've, they felt that, you know, when they're depressed or when they're on certain rounds of medication, it can impact their ability to be aggressive. 
And I, I mean, I can relate to some degree to this, not to the same extent, but I mean, I think we've all had that, right? We've had days where you just, you kind of roll into the gym and you're just not feeling it and you just get your ass kicked. But then there's days where I roll into the gym and I'm like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to haul ass today. And I, you know, I do way, way better. And it's crazy just how much that mindset makes a difference. And I'm wondering for people who are suffering from real depression here and it's impacting their ability to perform, especially at the competition level. Is there any advice you can share with people like that? You know, this is a place where, um, Every person is different. And, and so, you know, one of the things that we see, for instance, with medications, with the you know, antidepressant medications that I've talked about, is that there oftentimes is this, this kind of numbing effect where, yeah, you're not feeling depressed, but you're just kind of a little emotionally numb and distant from stuff. And, and I can see where people that uh, are experiencing that side effect from the medication might actually struggle to really get motivated to compete the way that they, the way that they are used to, you know, because it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't kind of matter as much. Now, the other thing is I, you know, I've got a, a, a good buddy who struggles with depression and, you know, he, competition was this hugely important thing in his life and he was really focused on it and he would get really into camps and and he'd go and he'd compete like a you know just like a monster i mean it's kind of the guy you're scared to get matched up with and however it was a double-edged sword because if he didn't you know if if he didn't get to the the gold medal he was really depressed and and really beat himself up and as he started doing therapy and started finding some kind of healthier sort of ways of thinking about his life and himself, he's now kind of saying, you know, maybe I'll compete, maybe I won't, but it's not this hugely important thing because it it wasn't the only thing of value in his life. And so, uh, you know, the, the answer, unfortunately, is for every individual, they need to look at, you know, themselves in context and they need to look at jujitsu and competition and the relationship that it has for their, their feelings about themselves. One of the, one of the, one of the big places that we, uh, sabotage ourselves is when we look at an experience, you know, whether it's losing or winning, whether it is feeling uh, a certain feeling that we have in a moment and we think it means something. You know, we think it means something about the future. Oh my God, I lost today. I'm never going to win again. My jujitsu career is over. Oh my God, I got scared in that situation. I didn't know what to do. Ah, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm awful at jujitsu. So we, we start applying the meaning to this experience. Well, that experience is just an experience and it doesn't mean anything more or less than any other experience in our life. We have to look at everything in a big picture before we start thinking that it means something about who we are. And so again, you know, that that's kind of the work that I would be doing in therapy with people around these issues is trying to let, let's look at the, at, at this in the big picture. Let's pull back and then let's also identify what are your goals. My goal is to feel better. My goal is to uh, say in jujitsu. My, my my goal is to 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 learn. My goal is to uh, to engage with with my buddies. My goal is to to get a chance to hang out with guys because my you know my my field of therapy is filled with 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 women who are wonderful. But it's fun to go to jujitsu and hang out with guys and and kind of talk smack, you know. And those are the those are the ways we we integrate all of this. One of the things I was thinking about, you know, with you guys is that we all have these times when we hit kind of a plateau, right? Where we feel like, ah, you know, I'm not learning new technique. Um, guys that I'm used to beating, they're progressing and I'm not. And all of a sudden these guys are beating me and I don't know what's going on. And, uh, that's something I've struggled with. And, and, and what I looked at when I was struggling with, with that was, okay, I need to pull back my goals. And so I would identify a move that I wanted to, to do a technique I wanted to hit during a day. And I'd go in and my goal was just to hit that technique. And 
it doesn't matter if I get my ass kicked all day long. If I hit that one technique once that day, I win because that was my goal. So we pull back our goals and make them achievable so that we keep moving forward. Little baby steps. It's funny you mentioned that. That's something that we've talked about quite extensively here on the podcast, which is, you know, people, they get their identity caught up in their goals. And sometimes for reasons totally out of your control, those goals may or may not happen. And so we always advise that people focus on building quality habits and processes and focus on that, focus on operating the process versus obsessing over what result may come, right? It's it's better to focus on your goal for today on the mats and, and to also set a goal, like you said. I mean, if you have a sweep you want to work on, to go into every class with a target. And that way, you know, if you are focused on constant in the moment training and just adhering to the process and adhering to quality habits, that's going to be more meaningful than some goal that for reasons completely unrelated to you, you might not ever be able to achieve. And so our advice is always to not get your ego tied up in the desire for these long-term big picture wins you might want to have. Yeah. I, th- I think as a jujitsu athlete um, and so- someone who just competes in jujitsu or, you know, their main source of income is running a school. I can see many times where I might battle something that could feel like some like depression on some level. Like, uh, I, I'd never felt that way about losing a competition because I'm getting really good at losing, <laughs> but, uh, things like injuries, uh, I could definitely see, you know, being depressed when I, when I get injuries, I, I feel my mindset is different. Uh, certainly right now with a lot of the lockdowns and things like that, not being able to train that, of course, I think if you're not feeling that right now as a jujitsu athlete, I don't really think you, you care about jujitsu that much. Things like maybe you see some of your students start kicking your ass, you know, and then it's a, it's a battle of your ego versus you as an instructor. But then, you know, the way I deal with that is I realize, well, then I'm, I'm achieving my goal as an instructor. If my, if my guys can start to really pour it on me and, and the systems that I, that used to work on them no longer work on them, then this is actually uh it feels shitty in the moment, but it's actually a really benefit. It shows that the goal is happening and that people are improving around me. And uh, yeah. And one of the bigger ones, that I, that I think will definitely be something I have to fight is, you know, when you kind of realize that you're, you're far now past your prime, you can't roll the same way as you used to. You can't compete at the same level. I can't remember who told me, someone told me that athletes die two lives, the, the life when you realize that you have to hang it up. And then of course your normal death. And it is true. I think, I think, uh, the older I get, and I'm only in my early thirties, but you know, time passes so fast. And the older I get, things are starting to break down more and more. And as you know, you're just, I'm just not 20 anymore. So again, it, it just means I have to adapt more and I have to prepare myself for, you know, the limitations and setbacks and inevitable things that could be coming down the pipe as I, you know, as I progress as a martial artist and a, and a gym owner. You bring up death and that's a hard thing to talk about, but it's a really important thing to talk about. And, um, you know, one of the one of the most memorable kind of experiences I've had with jujitsu was this kind of cool thing where this this buddy of mine who's a who's a you know another black belt um, he pulled me aside after class and he said, "Hey, you know, I'm I'm a little worried about this uh, kid that's hanging out with my my teenage son because uh, I think he might I, I think he might be suicidal and and what do I do?" And uh, a couple of guys were guys and gals, you know, uh, were hanging out with us and. So I sat there and I did like a 20 minute discussion about suicide intervention and prevention with the people in our lives. And we don't talk about it. And we think that if we don't talk about it, it won't happen. And we also are afraid that if we talk about it, that somebody might become suicidal. And that's one of, the, that's one of the myths. And unfortunately, that myth kind of, um, leads to people being isolated, which is, one of the number one causes of suicidal um, depression when you're isolated. And so what I tell people and um, around the world, I do these trainings and, and I say, you know, look, the number one intervention is if you're afraid that somebody might be suicidal, if you're afraid somebody is thinking about killing themselves or harming themselves, ask, ask them, are you, 
are you thinking about hurting yourself? Are you suicidal? Because I care about you and I want to know. And it's scary to ask that because you're afraid that they're going to say yes. And, I mean, I have asked hundreds, probably thousands of people those questions. And every time I ask it, I'm scared that they're going to say yes. But it's like jujitsu. I have learned that if they do say yes, now I get to help them, that I've got the skills to be able to help them and support them through it. So if they say yes, then your job is now to connect with them and to help them connect with other people in their life to keep them safe, get them into therapy, refer them, you know, bring in the coach, bring in the professor and say, hey, let's uh, let's make sure you're not alone with this because now we got you. We got your back. We're supporting you here. We want you around. We don't want you to hurt yourself. The one thing I'll say is when you ask the question, don't say, hey, you're not you're not suicidal, are you? Because when we say it like that, we're telling them, you need to tell me no, because if because I, I can't handle it if you say yes. We're programming people with with the way to answer that question. There's. There's there's a wrong way to answer to ask the question, which is, you know, you're not suicidal, are you? But other than that, there's lots and lots and lots of right ways to, to ask it. Um, but the number one important thing to do is just ask, because as soon as you ask somebody if they're suicidal, now they're not alone um, because it breaks down the isolation of being alone with this terrifying thought of hurting yourself. Um, we've had some high profile suicides, you know, in, in jujitsu and, and, uh, and, and unfortunately as we're dealing with depression and as we're dealing with this God awful pandemic, there's a lot of lonely, isolated people out there that are starting to question, is it worth it? And the way we help them, whether they're our, our, our kid, whether they're our wife or our husband, or they're our fellow jujitsu player, um, is to let them know they're not alone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would then ask you one more question tying on to that, and, and then we can tie this up. One thing that I think most of us would agree on is that jujitsu is full of some of the most stubborn, bullheaded people that you'll ever find, right? <laughs> I don't I mean, know what the uh, hell you're talking about. You know, you're just making yeah. this up, dude. <laughs> so the challenge that I think we face here is that it is hard to get people in jujitsu to seek help or to accept help because they all want to be self-sufficient, right? I mean, that's kind of part of the warrior mindset, I suppose, right? Is you want to be, you want to be tough. You want to be self-sufficient. I mean, I've seen people in jujitsu like suffer pretty nasty injuries on the mats and they'll just, they won't go to the doctor. They won't go to the hospital. They'll just try to tough it out. And I wonder from your perspective, what advice do you have to these people? Because it sounds like a big part of what you're saying here is that Everyone's experience with depression is there's no blanket answer. And the only thing that is really universal in all cases is you need to seek and receive and accept help. So how do we do that? How do we provide that to people? I mean, you've already talked about how from the perspective of of the friend, you have to ask and you have to be there to provide. But from the perspective of the person who is suffering from depression, what advice can we give them to help steer them towards the help they need to receive? Um, you know, really uh, two things. Um, one is we need to let them know that struggling with these issues doesn't mean they're broken. You know, there's that meaning thing again. Struggling with depression doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It doesn't mean that you're weak. It doesn't mean that you're going to feel this way for the rest of your life. It just means, hey, you're struggling right now and let's get you help so you don't have to struggle um, because this is hard and this sucks. The other thing is it goes back to that not being alone thing is that they are not the only person that's feeling this way. That again is where, you know, this is a re- really remarkable experience with, with this pandemic affecting people worldwide because everybody is feeling it. Nobody is feeling like, Hey, this is great. This is wonderful. I mean, even the, even the introverts who, who, you know, felt like, yeah, I, I, I'd be fine never talking to people and always being alone and those stupid, 
little social media things about, hey, would I pay? Would you would you take a million dollars to live for a year on this island and not be able to talk to anybody? And some people are like, yeah, I could do that, no problem. Well, you know, this pandemic gets pretty close to that, and it turns out those people who thought they could do it without a problem can't. Everybody is struggling with it, and we can use that as a way of saying to people, hey. Everybody is struggling right now and or even in the future, hey, I have struggled with the feelings you're struggling with in the past and I got help and now I feel better. And I realized that having to reach out and get help didn't mean that I was weak or not a warrior. It just meant, hey, this was out of my wheelhouse and I needed to go. It's like it's like going to get a private, right? I needed to go get a private to figure out what I was doing wrong and how I could improve my technique. This is the same thing for your brain as opposed to your jujitsu. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. And it's, you know, it's important for all of us to remember that being a warrior does not mean that you're a lone wolf all the time, right? You know, you a big part of having a fighter's mindset is also understanding that you have a team. And yeah, as as, as always, you know, if We're here for anyone who wants to chat. I mean, we get a lot of listener feedback on this topic, so please do feel free to shoot us a message. David, thank you so much again for all of your time and your insight here. Super, super fantastic conversation. And now I know that you've got a lot of works out there that people would probably be interested in finding. For those who want to read your work, see the stuff that you've contributed, where can they find you and find this stuff? Uh, you know, Twitter is a good way to connect to me, um, at Dr. David Lay, last name's L-E-Y, even though it sounds like L-A-Y, I I am a sex doctor, right, so I had to have that name. The so Twitter is a good way to find me, and then um, uh, as I as I said, I write on Psychology Today, and uh, I've got a you know I got a lot of blogs there, and it, literally if you Google you know David Lay Psychology Jujitsu, you'll find you'll find some of the stuff I've written and and talked about with this stuff. Amazing, amazing, and for the rest of for us, if you want to support the show, I think our listeners know how to do that. You can go to Patreon.com/slash/BJJMentalModels. That's the single best way that you can help us keep the lights on here. It really makes a difference. Again, that's patreon.com slash models. We also offer a ton of premium content and virtual feedback sessions through that service. So please do consider signing up if you haven't already. David, again, thank you so much for this fantastic chat. I really appreciate you stopping by. I'd love to have you again in the future. There's just so much stuff that we could talk about. So again, thank you so much for being generous with your time. Really do appreciate it. Thanks, David. Great chat. Thank you. My pleasure. Maybe next time we can talk about sex, relationships, and jujitsu, because that's always fun. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Yeah, it's basically the same thing, right? A lot of the positions are identical, but anyway. Nice knowing you guys. Take care of yourselves. All right, see ya. All right, take care. Bye.